Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, in the coming days, the Canadian government says they will be imposing even more sanctions on the Russian economy to further choke the country's ability to fund its war. Should we be bracing ourselves for the collateral damage here in Canada? After China received criticism for appearing to stand by Russia in its attack on Ukraine, Beijing is now offering to play a role in ending the attack. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, joins us to talk about that. And the invasion of Ukraine was front and center during Joe Biden's State of the Union address last night in Washington. We'll dissect that for you as well. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As always, though, we want to focus on what's happening, the crisis uh, in Ukraine, which is impacting just about everything from gasoline prices to, well, frankly, the world peace that we've talked about so extensively over the last little while. Uh, and a number of nations, uh, of course, including folks in NATO and Canada, uh, are doing their best to try to to put some pressure on Russia to, well, basically stop what they're doing in Ukraine. Uh, a pullout would be, I guess, the best possible example. But in the meantime, it's to put pressure on Putin and, of course, the oligarchs there. And to that point, uh, Finance Minister Christy Freeland has said that Canada is actually putting more sanctions on the Russian economy. What we are seeing here from Vladimir Putin is an attempt to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to behave like a communist dictator, but he and his entourage had thought they could do that and continue to enjoy all of the fruits of global capitalism. So uh, more sanctions and uh, more sanctions from the United States and other countries as well. Are they going to be effective? And is it doing anything uh, to Putin's plan to try to basically take over Ukraine, as we can clearly see? To talk about this, uh, please to welcome to the program Tina J. Park, who is a junior fellow with the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto. Uh, Tina, welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. Good this morning. morning. Let me ask you right off the top. This is the question a lot of people seem to want to dance around, but I, I want to get right to it and, and get your opinion on this. Uh, we, we talked about things that we're going to get into a discussion this morning about things like no-fly zones and, and and more pressures that are being put on uh, the, the Russian prime minister premier and prime ministers, both of them, of course, who are involved in the decision here. But the threat of nuclear reaction uh, from Putin is always there. And he talked about it. He's talked about it just about every day now for the last four or five days. Would he do that? Would he actually go to that extent, do you think? Well, Bill, I think uh, that would be a, a terrible mistake on Mr. Putin's part. And I think he's also aware that it would be a suicidal move on his part. That would trigger uh, NATO and, and the Western alliance to uh, really escalate the current situation. And we would be compelled to uh, take action in retaliation and attack Russia. So I think uh, uh, knowing the devastating consequences of nuclear warfare uh, and knowing uh, already very tense um, global uh, uh, sort of uh, situation uh, surrounding Ukraine and beyond, I think uh, uh, it would be very risky for Mr. Putin to go ahead with that. Uh, and should he do so, there will be tremendous consequences for Russia as well. Now, a rational thinking person would say that, and I, I totally agree with your thought on that. Uh, but there's a, a, a concern right now among many people that Putin is not acting rationally. This seems to be a different Putin than we've seen over the last eight or 10 years. Are you concerned about that kind of stability or instability that may be a factor here? 
That is very difficult to comment on, Bill, because we don't really know what's going on in his head. And it seems like Putin has massively miscalculated his chance of success by invading Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian resistance has been very strong. And in fact, in, in invading Ukraine, uh, Putin has managed to unite the Western alliance and uh, many countries well beyond NATO um, to donate materials and weapons and other humanitarian assistance uh, in support of Ukraine. So what we are seeing is a really horrible tactical uh, situation for Putin and his forces. And uh, Putin, I think... Uh, did not realize this. And, you know, we don't know his uh, current uh, state of mental health. But what we do know is that things are not going as well as he had hoped for. Uh, we also know that Russian forces are having a very difficult, uh, challenging uh, time uh, in terms of their operational uh, readiness and how they're advancing in Ukraine. Uh, and none of this, I think, was expected on Putin's part. The other thing, too, is, of course, uh, you know, history has shown us that uh, with Crimea and, and some of the other incursions that, sadly, he's he's been involved with, he always knew that he had support back home, not necessarily with the Russian population, but, but with the oligarchs and those who have been supportive of him over the years. I, I don't know that that support's there now or that he even feels that it's there now. Well, that's a great point that you raised, Bill, because I don't think Russian people uh, in general support uh, what's happening with uh, Putin's advancements in Ukraine and his oligarchs are likely very upset with all the sanctions and measures that are in place against uh, their holdings. So um, what we are seeing is a certain behavior of a tyrant who had a grand vision for Russian empire and bringing back Russian-speaking people uh, together and really um, using force to expand his empire, which is no longer a norm in global affairs. We are uh, under a new set of uh, rules and the UN Charter clearly recognizes state sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. Uh, so he has made a mistake first in invading Ukraine. So that's a, a grave political mistake. And we uh, also are seeing a resistance and a dissent uh, coming out of Russia, which really challenges his rule as a leader. It just seems as if uh, you have to really question the, the overall plan here. Uh, militarily, certainly, as you say, I'm, I'm sure that they thought that this was going to be over by now, that they would have taken the capital city and a number of other cities and, and, and had some sort of an occupational stance at this stage. That hasn't happened. But I guess more importantly, Tina, is as you've just mentioned, the uh, the the cyber war the the propaganda war uh, that he figures that he that you know traditionally they've been so good at has not worked it hasn't worked with the russian people and it certainly hasn't worked with the the, the global community either Yes, that's absolutely important to point out because what we're looking at now is a hybrid warfare and informational warfare on the part of Ukraine has been going very strong and a number of uh, cyber uh, companies and others are assisting uh, Ukraine's uh, uh, informational warfare. Uh, its neighbor, Estonia, for instance, houses uh, NATO's uh, uh, Center for uh, Cybersecurity and uh, all hands are on the deck in terms of uh, ensuring that um, the warfare in cyber space is fought and uh, Putin uh, is losing that warfare for sure uh, because uh, evidence indicates that the public opinion around the world has not bought into the Russian propaganda. So uh, things are, are uh, looking very bad actually um, for Mr. Putin as this warfare prolongs and uh, as you mentioned earlier, 
all sorts of measures are uh, being placed uh, in terms of economic sanctions, in terms of banning uh, Russian flights and uh, uh, ensuring that the Western uh, Alliance provides all sorts of humanitarian aid for uh, the 800,000 refugees who are fleeing from their homes in Ukraine. Tina, I, I, I'm a little resident, to, resident rather, to get into to military strategy because an awful lot of that is going to be based on intelligence that we may or may not have, you know, any uh, information about. But one of the th- questions that keeps coming up time and time again is, uh, why don't they just, uh, the, mean the NATO forces, of course, uh, install a no-fly zone over Ukraine at this stage? And and they, it seems it's a military tactic that we've heard of before and that we've seen employed before. My expertise is limited in this, but the people I've talked to that do have that military expertise have always said, doesn't apply here. It it would be disastrous uh, to do that sort of thing. What, What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I do agree that uh, imposing a no-fly zone, um, so having NATO forces implement the no-fly zone over Ukraine will be tremendously difficult and quite frankly dangerous because it would trigger a Europe-wide conflict with a nuclear armed power. And even the Ukrainian leaders have appealed to the West to set up a no-fly zone. Um, This uh, is a very dangerous move because it will escalate the level of tensions uh, in Ukraine. It would also prevent uh, Ukrainian uh, flights uh, uh, from engaging directly with Russian planes uh, spotted on these skies and shoot at them if necessary. So any action from NATO on the uh, skies of Ukraine would be seen as a, an aggressive move uh, by Russia. And that gives certain level of justification for Russia to look at an even uh, more dangerous option. So we do not want to escalate tensions. We do not want any uh, miscommunication about our aim. And NATO is fundamentally a defensive alliance. Ukraine, as of now, is not a NATO member. And we have to be very careful in really pushing for a diplomatic resolution to this crisis in, instead of uh, taking it to the next level of warfare. Which would, I guess, be inevitable, isn't it? I mean, anything you uh, sanction, whatever it is, and even a no-fly zone, is only good if you enforce it. And if you enforce it, uh, shooting down Russian planes, for instance, that are, are being you know, non-compliant, uh, they're, they're going to respond. And, and you don't know how they're going to respond, do you? Exactly. And that's what we want to avoid, Bill. We do not want to escalate tensions. We do not want any misunderstanding about what's going on. And things could escalate so quickly when it comes to missiles and heavy artillery and uh, and any consequences of implementing a no-fly zone. So we're really not there yet. And I think what we want is to really push for um, negotiation and finding a political and diplomatic solution. And I know they started to try to do that anyway on Monday, and it didn't seem to go well, according to what Ukrainian uh, officials were telling us anyway. Is there a way out here uh, for Putin to, to look at this and say, hey, this was just a grand mistake? And I'm sure he's being told that by some of his advisors right now. But, you know, he's also got a huge ego, uh, and uh, he's not going to simply back out and say, okay, we're going home now. Uh, is there an exit path for him now? Well, that is, I think, the big question here, because as you mentioned, Mr. Putin uh, needs some form of saving his face after engaging militarily in Ukraine. Uh, he has seen that he doesn't have any support uh, in terms of, uh, you know, countries like um, China, who would normally be an ally uh, for Russia. But China has been very clear that they would like to uphold the rules-based order. And we know that in uh, invading Ukraine, uh, Putin has united 
inhibit uh, the Western countries and uh, the countries that believe in democracy and freedom. So we're now perceiving it not just as Ukraine versus Russia, but the free world versus Russia. And he is losing that battle. And there are a number of uh, possible uh, sort of uh, end game for uh, what has happened, but uh, it would first uh, require a very careful mediation uh, to promote the ceasefire and an immediate end of the current uh, military conflict. But Secondary to that, we also need a humanitarian solution. All these 800,000 Ukrainians who have left home, and many of them are women and children because Ukrainian men have left uh, and stayed behind in uh, Ukraine to fight uh, against the Russian forces. We need some sort of a solution for dealing with this new refugee crisis. Uh, and right now, uh, neighboring countries like Poland uh, and others are, are really shouldering that burden of refugees. But we need uh, some sort of coordinated mechanism on the part of Western countries to deal with this humanitarian crisis. And we have to also make uh, Mr. Putin accountable for the war crimes and crimes against humanity, which he has committed by invading uh, Ukraine. Which I guess is one of the reasons why uh, President Zelensky appealed to the United Nations yesterday. And again, I don't know how effective any, any UN involvement would be in this situation, but he did raise that specter, didn't he, about charging Putin with war crimes, which is something that is within the jurisdiction of the United Nations, if they want to go that far, which I, I think there's a case for it. Uh, traditionally, though, they haven't seemed to actually want to swing that hammer, but I, I think it's applicable here, don't you? Look, Bill, uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity constitute crimes that are covered under the principle of responsibility to protect. And Canadian government actually is uh, fully behind uh, this plan to uh, ensure that Putin is held accountable for these war crimes and crimes against humanity. He is attacking civilian infrastructure and ordinary citizens of Ukraine who have not committed any, any wrongdoings and who just happen to be his neighbors. And we have to really ensure that this R2P principle, which is a very Canadian, uh, very proud Canadian legacy that we have promoted on the global stage in the past, is upheld. And we have to ensure that we use all resources and tools at our disposal, whether it is economic sanctions, diplomatic mediation, offering humanitarian aid, or tactically coordinating with uh, NATO uh, for cyber uh, warfare, uh, we have to ensure that there is a very concrete long-term strategy of engagement in place to deal with the damages inflicted by Putin and hold him accountable. And that's one of the takeaways here, really, isn't it, Tina? If if it were to stop today, and, and you know, God, I wish it would. I'm sure everybody wishes it would. There's quite a mess that needs to be cleaned up here, as you say, from you know, the standpoint of, of the refugees that have to be dealt with. I know a lot of them would probably want to go back home, but they may not have homes to go back to because of the things that the Russian troops have done here. And then what to do with Russia over the long haul as well. So this is this is going to take a long, long time to try to sort out and to try to, to, to rectify some of the, the misdeeds that have been done. Absolutely. I mean, it is uh, uh, obviously more interesting to talk about military developments, and uh, it, it shocks our conscience actually to realize the humanitarian consequences of what's been happening in Ukraine. Canada, uh, as a nation that has uh, championed global humanitarianism throughout our history, has a lot to offer when it comes to welcoming refugees and providing humanitarian assistance. And I think that is a more important issue for us to focus our attention but provided that we can somehow 
bring this current conflict to a resolution. And in doing so, we will need cooperation from all major powers. And thankfully, what this crisis has demonstrated is that the uh, alliance is united. NATO member countries, as well as other UN members who are shocked by what has happened with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, came together. And we are speaking as one voice in terms of imposing sanctions and uh, doing what we can to provide weapons and other aids to Ukraine. And we must continue this fight. And in doing so, uh, some of us will have to also sacrifice our way of life uh, in providing more assistance to the people of Ukraine who have been very brave in, in their resistance against uh, the Russian invasion. Absolutely. Uh, more to come on this, as they say, and, and, and it's for a long, long time to come on. Uh, just the weeks and months ahead, if not years ahead, to try to rectify this, this great injustice. Tina, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Tina J. Park uh, from uh, the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary uh, International History at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The situation not getting a whole lot better, of course, in Ukraine. Air raid sirens are ringing out in the Ukraine capital of Kiev this morning as Russian forces have escalated their attacks on uh, crowded urban areas. Correspondent Aaron Katursky says the number of Ukrainians fleeing continues to grow. 800,000 people have now fled Ukraine as Russia intensifies its assault. The Russian Ministry of Defense posted video that it said showed helicopters above Ukraine, guns aimed at the ground. Fighting rages in the north, east and south while the humanitarian crisis deepens. A doctor in Kherson posted video of a maternity ward forced into a bomb shelter. The doctor said four women had given birth in the basement. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, Lviv. As we were mentioning earlier in the program, uh, even if Putin is looking for an exit ramp uh, because things are not going well for him, uh, how's that going to happen? And who's going to step in to actually try to facilitate that? Well, it uh, may come from a rather unusual source. Uh, and to talk about that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thank you, Bill. Last week when you were talking with us about what was happening in Ukraine, and you, you made that tie with China, which I think might have surprised a few people, but it's becoming more and more evident, Elliot, over the last four or five days, uh, that China has a large role to play here. Uh, economically, we talked about that. We're going to get more details about the, the economic relationship between China and Russia. But the story this morning, of course, is the Chinese foreign minister suggesting that they may step in and be willing to step in uh, and act as an intermediary to try to end this thing in, in Ukraine. Are you surprised by that? No, not really. They've uh, positioned themselves as uh, in, in a very interesting way through all this. Yes, we did indeed uh, point out somewhat <laughs> ahead of others, I, I suspect, that yep. China had offered in February uh, 4th summit this when uh, Mr. Putin did something really unusual. He left his isolation and went to Beijing. And they, they um, reached a deal worth, I don't know how many, 30 years worth of gas and oil. Basically, if sanctions were about to face Mr. Putin, then China was offering a backdoor out of them, not only in terms of energy, oil and gas, but also buying wheat. Now we have a situation where um, what had been viewed as kind of an axis of autocracies is coming under some stress as the behavior of Russia is leading to global condemnation. Here's China's position on this. China says um, they have not condemned Mr. Putin. They've said that all this is um, 
something they, they would like to see dis- de-escalated, and they are in position, in their view, to be the ideal interlocutor to, uh, to arrange, uh, again, now, not a back door, but an off-ramp for this crisis. They're saying that we want to uphold the global sanctions. They don't put it quite that way. They really want, they cannot afford, China cannot afford to ignore the global economic financial sanctions. They are so intertwined with SWIFT and with other aspects of the global financial situation. They cannot ignore uh, the sanctions that are being put on. They don't agree with the position of the West. They see the West as being, uh, as they would put it, uh, as they just have put it, actually, that what NATO is doing is Mr. Biden is consolidating his hold over Europe. (laughs) And... Russia is preemptively preventing NATO from coming to its border. Very sympathetic view toward Moscow. But at the other well, hand... And I guess you have to expect the political bombast in this, don't you? But this, the, the quote that jumped out at me here, Elliot... Yeah, sure. Uh, and this is from, from the Chinese foreign minister. says, right. we have always advocated respect for the sovereignty and territorial there integrity of all countries. Now, we could debate that for the next four hours as to whether or not there's any validity to that. But the, you're right. They're taking a kind of a side door entrance to this. They're not condemning Putin. They're saying... It's terrible what's happening to the civilians in Ukraine. We want to do something about it. Yes. They, uh, without, without saying, hey, by the way, it's Putin who's causing it. They don't want to go that far. Well, they, they're also trying to uh, unofficially or by their official news channels say, well, really, it's understandable what he's doing there. Uh, really, he's just, he's just preemptively preventing NATO coming to its borders and preventing the West from consolidating its position against, uh, against Russia. So this is really, you know, so understandable. But the, uh, the what you have underlined there correctly, Bill. Good, good for you for picking that out. A core tenant of of uh, Chinese foreign pol- of foreign policy, the, a core tenant of their existence as a state, when they broadcast to the world, is we oppose any intervention uh, into the sovereign territory of others. Com- keeping in mind that the entire stance of the Communist Party of China is that we have a national rejuvenation under the leadership of the party, particularly Xi Jinping, from the couple centuries of humiliation because we were invaded and we were humiliated. So we, we are absolutely opposed to any, uh, any territory in, invasion uh, crossing borders and territorial sovereignty being uh, violated. On the other hand, they've still got an eye on Taiwan. So yeah. it's going to be very tricky for them to say, okay, we... Uh, we really are watching very carefully, and we have to see how we are going to fit into this global condemnation. Maybe we can mediate, maybe we can de-escalate, but we also want to see what the world does when there is an attack, because on the to-do list for China, Xi Jinping, is that by 2049, Taiwan will be reintegrated, as they, as they see it, into the motherland. Much the same argument that we hear from Putin about Ukraine. And, and that raises the question uh, in many circles, and actually you raised it last week in our discussion, Elliot, with what's going on right now. Now, we didn't know f- seven days ago when you and I talked uh, that this was going to be stalled to the extent that it was, and the Russian forces were not going to have the success that they had probably thought they were going to have. But what does this do to China's long-term plan with Taiwan? Does it, does it motivate them to say, yeah, let's go and get this done now? Or are they saying maybe we should think twice about this? Again, I think they're watching very carefully to see what kind of reaction can be put against uh, an invasion. Will Mr. Putin really pay a high cost or not? 
is it the kind of cost that would also apply in case China decided to make a move? There's a a um, a number of scenarios. Apparently, the U.S. war gamed uh, all this out. Nine different scenarios where there might be a crisis over the Taiwan Strait, and in uh, all nine of them, China wins and the U.S. loses. It cannot defend Taiwan under the, if. if there's a very swift move by China in these in these war games. These are this is just you know paper exercises. Um, it would be very difficult for the West to defend Taiwan, and un- undoubtedly that's been noticed by by China. The future of Taiwan, however, very much should be kept in mind as we look at what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, because this we, we may be playing this out and again. God knows when 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 China decides to act. Uh, now, it should not be really much of a surprise, I guess, to anybody, Elliot, that there's this relationship between the Chinese government and, and Putin. Uh, you know, this kind of, a, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And, and I guess it goes all the way back to 1989 in Tiananmen Square. I mean, there were sanctions imposed on China uh, right. by the, the global communities at that time. And it was Russia that basically stepped up and said, don't worry, we got you back here. Uh, let's cut a couple of trade deals and we'll do this. And and of course, China did the same thing with Russia back in uh, after the Crimea incursion some years ago, invasion of that particular land. So, so this is happening back and forth all the time. But China's playing a, a well; they're playing a, a, a dangerous game here. I mean, they don't want to condemn Putin. They're handing money to him through the back door, as you say, through previous trade deals. Uh, does that mean that they basically got some sway over Putin to say, "Okay, enough of this. Enough. We're going to uh, for the world stage. We're going to have to do something about this and get you out of here." They can stand back and take a look at their global situation, China's global situation. They hold the world's largest foreign exchanges, and uh, because you know we keep buying things from them, so they have a, a huge foreign exchange buildup, and lo- most of that's in dollars. Uh, Europe alone, let alone the United States, um, provides a, a far more lucrative market and future opportunities for China. Uh, Russia is really a minor player globally in terms of finance, actual muscle in the money markets. They they are a small economy compared to the rest of the world. If China is forced to make a choice between we'll deal with Russia and we'll deal with the rest of the world, they're going to choose the rest of the world. But at the same time, they do have a situation where us autocrats has to have to stick together. That we have an alternative vision of how the world should work. Russia and China share that vision. We have to kind of uh, stick together. So they are walking a, an interesting tightrope as, as they go forward on this. I think um, ultimately when we stand back from this, China is the biggest single winner if there's a winner out of this global situation because, yes, Russia may have to look to China to uh, give them a, a way, an off-ramp uh, if, if Russia's um, continuing invasion comes a cropper and they need an off-ramp. Right now Russia thinks they're going to win because they can – they can. We haven't talked about Ukraine directly today, but they can just basically pulverize it into submission. So let's have peace talks, all right, and maybe China can play a role. But basically, when Ukraine's ready to surrender, we'll be glad to talk to them. But that's that's the Russian position today. But standing back from all that, what we see now is that the world is moving in the direction of China from China's perspective. That right now the problem is, yes, the U.S. can apply all these sanctions because so much of the world's economy is run on the dollar but we have an alternative we have the chinese currency the yuan and more and more of the world's reserves are going to be held in the yuan so the the long-term trend here 
is a win-win for China. If Russia is weakened and become kind of a vassal state, it uh, means that the Chinese can move even more directly into what used to be Soviet Central Asia and their, their immediate neighborhood. The world will see China as strong and stable, and their currency as an alternative, their trading system as an alternative. At the moment, that's uh, not the case. But as this goes on, that increasingly looks like it will be the case. Is this uh, developing into a case of the emperor has no clothes? Uh, this, what this seems to be doing here, Elliot, is exposing Putin as uh, as basically a fraud. He's 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 not a world power. He's not the the heavy-handed guy that everybody. I mean, he's he's a tyrant. We know that. And they're a nuclear power. You can't take that away from them. But they're not an economic power anymore. Uh, you can question even their military uh, power at this particular stage with the, the problems they're having now. I mean, you know, even well, a couple of years ago, I mean, you know, their, their largest trading partners in Europe were Germany, Netherlands, and Italy. They're all aligned with China now. I mean, China's the, the big dog in that exactly. fight. And nobody seems to have noticed that anymore. But I think what we're finding out over the last 10 days or so is not that Russia is not to be trivi- you know, trivialized at any stretch of the imagination, but they're not the powerhouse that Putin wants everybody to think they are. But he uses his power, as we are seeing oh, yeah. in Ukraine, and as we saw in Chechnya, as we have seen, um, and spectacularly, but overlooked right now, in the case of Syria. The intervention, right now we're talking about, oh, war crimes are being committed, and uh, in fact, that's going to be looked at by the International Criminal Court. But this has been going on for a long time. In Syria, they have been playing this role of kind of crushing from the air and the ground. They don't have troops on the ground. They use their air power. They use their power, even though they're not the great big global power uh, puffed up that we may see them, they do use what they have very effectively in crushing their opponents as they see them, and and they move their power around the world in that that sense, Uh, Syria being, again, a case study. We We do not know... Um, how this is going to play out in terms of the domestic situation in Russia. Now that many sports figures are coming out, sports is very important, you know, now that sports figures are coming out and condemning Putin, and Russia is not only being kept off the uh, financial stage in very crushing ways, the, the ruble's crashing, a recession is looming, this, they can't, they can't uh, their sovereign debt is going to come under question, nobody's going to help them out in buying the sovereign debt, but the, the cultural side as well, closing in on them. So I think it's kind of a race right now, as near as I can tell, between how fast can Russia consolidate its situation in Ukraine compared to how long will the world do without the oil and gas reserves that China that uh, are coming off the market, being removed from the market. The world still depends on, the, on energy. Much of that energy in certain key places uh, and in important ways comes out of, out of Russia. How long will we have our patience to maintain this pressure on Russia uh, as prices of the gas, to, uh, when we go to gas up our, in our neighborhoods, how long will the world put up with the Russia being off that oil and energy market? So can they consolidate in Ukraine before we get fed up with the sanctions? I think as, as a looming question as well. Somebody, someplace, has a vision of, of how this is going to end. Uh, and I don't ha- understand exactly w- which way this is going right now. Uh, you know, listening to, to, you know, 
the Ukraine officials and, and especially their president, uh, they're never going to surrender. This is the, the Churchill speech all over again. And, and their, their courage is, is simply remarkable here. Uh, but where's, where is this going to end? I mean, is Russia going to give up on this? Are they going to walk away? I don't see that happening. Uh, I don't see Zelensky or anybody else waving a white flag at this stage either. Well, uh, it's going to take a, a, a dedicated effort by, I don't know if it's going to be China or somebody else, to simply say, okay, uh, enough is enough. Let's just get back to where we were here. Uh, but Russia is going to want to maintain some sort of a presence. I mean, Putin still has a plan to bring back the USSR, and Ukraine's a big part of that. Yes, they're reuniting the great Slavic nation. Ukraine wasn't a real state anyway. It's a little Russia. It's a phantom state, etc. And we have to defend Russian speakers. It's, so it also, and this hasn't gotten sufficient attention, if they succeed, Russia succeeds, they're changing the geopolitics of the region. If Ukraine becomes, along with Belarus, becomes now really um, a Russian bastion, they now, they now can put pressure on NATO that they couldn't do before. But that's mm -hmm. down the road. We don't know how this is going to come out at the minute. Will pressure on Mr. Putin build up so much from the sanctions, from the middle class, and here's something I want to raise that uh, I, I can't answer, perhaps from his own military, not, be, not only because they're being a bit shown up right now, they can raise the barbarity level in, in Ukraine and pulverize it. There is going to be no, no fly zone. There's going to be no help, actual material help from the West. There's going to be no troops on the ground to come in and save Ukraine. But does the military really like the idea of brandishing this uh, nuclear card? Do they like having their their body bag, you know, their, their young conscripts coming back in body bags and the mothers of Russia saying, well, what have you gotten us into? We don't know how that's going to all balance out. I am very disturbed by the uh, raising of the nuclear issue so quickly and so early. I'm also very disturbed by the fact that, and it's kind of overlooked, that no matter all, what we say today about we were all on Ukraine's side, they have been left alone to struggle against um, a superpower that's nuclear armed, even though it's a weaker superpower than we may have thought, uh, they still are facing overwhelming odds. Uh, and the world is now rushing in rather belatedly, but with no material uh, help in terms of we will, we will fight for you. Well, and that's that's got to be part of the frustration. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, NATO's sending over more troops, and they're aligned there, and they've got their their, their task force ready, but they're on they're on the sidelines. Uh, they, they said they're not going in there, no matter what, and 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 that's got to be awfully frustrating, as you say, for the Ukraine people and for the the people that are fighting on the ground there, uh, which is just one more reason why there's so much. Uh, up in the air right now as to actually how this is actually going to end up and, and what role China is going to play and, and what role NATO is going to play in this situation. It's uh, something that we have not seen. I mean, we've seen conflicts. I mean, you've mentioned Syria and some other things that have come up. And, uh, and um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and I know you are too, to remember the, you know, the, the, the dark days of the Cold War in the 1960s when we had air raid sirens going on in Canada here uh, because of the concern about ramping up nuclear attack of the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. And we haven't seen much of that, but I think we're at that point now. Where this is this is a very, very dangerous part part of history in which we're watching right now, and we're not quite sure how this is going to roll out. I think you've summarized it well. We're at something like a hinge in history. We do not know how it's going to work out. Will Mr. Putin survive at home? Uh, the kinds of pressures that are being put upon him. And again, the role of the military there is a, a black box to us. We don't have any idea about that kind of pressure. The oligarchs, you know, 
the pressure's on, squeeze the oligarchs and they'll squeeze Putin. We don't know how that's going to work out. The middle class may be feeling this, but the Russian uh, peasantry and the support base in the countryside and uh, the religious countryside in particular, uh, that's going to be a, a bastion of support for Mr. Putin, no matter what else. The dogs of war have been unleashed. We aren't sure where they're going to go. Uh, it's a dangerous time. Again, a, a bit of a hinge of history. Will China be able to uh, play a role that can resolve this and they'll come out looking good, or are they going to try to just take advantage of it for their own uh, long-term goal of emerging as the dominant global power? All of that's now up in the air, but the Ukraine, uh, the people of Ukraine are paying the cost for all of this geopolitics and all the economic reckoning that we're talking about. Elliot, always a pleasure to have you on here to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this. So oh, you're very know, We'll be talking more about this down the road. Take care. Yeah, and to you. Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A very important part of uh, what goes on every year politically in Washington is the State of the Union address. It's done every year by the president. Uh, it was a rather uh, short and sweet, not so sweet speech, I guess, last year because of COVID. Uh, but there was a lot to talk about with U.S. President uh, Joe Biden from Russia to inflation. Sagar Magani has the details. In his first State of the Union address, the president told a largely unmasked House chamber that Vladimir Putin thought he could roll into Ukraine with no consequences. But he badly miscalculated. And the U.S. and its allies are making him pay with harsh sanctions. The president drew a bipartisan standing ovation when calling for a salute to Ukrainians fighting tyranny, a notable moment of unity amid stark differences. With Republicans blasting the president for doing little to tame soaring inflation. My top priority is getting prices under control. He split his hour-long address between international and domestic concerns, including the virus pandemic. We've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19. Saying the nation's back to a more normal routine, while encouraging more workers to return to offices. Sagar Magani, Washington. So how does it play uh, back home? That's always the big thing, of course, uh, when a president makes a speech of some significance like this. And to talk about this, uh, please to welcome back to the program Brian J. Karam. Brian, of course, is a political commentator on CNN. He's a columnist for Salon.com and the Washington Diplomat and the host of the podcast, Just Ask the Question. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Brian. Hope you're doing well these days. Doing well. How about yourself? Excellent. Listen, I, I want to get into the State of the Union address, certainly. Sure. Uh, but, but I always plug your podcast, of course, and, and I always listen to it. I just ask the question. Uh, I, and I got a question uh, sure. about your most uh, most recent posting, which I guess was done at the beginning of this week. I, I, I guess the guy that you actually coached back in your football coaching days uh, yeah. that you hooked up at, Joel Wasserman. Uh, first of all, that's going back a few years. He's teaching <laughs> in English yeah, these days. I'm old. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, well pretty well. <laughs> how, but how, did you maintain contact with this guy? How did you hook up with him again? Yeah, I, I've been in touch with him uh, off and on over the years. And he's a, he was a good kid, played football for me, was one of my linemen. And um, he uh, got in touch with me first time about uh, about this issue about six months ago. And we just kind of kept up uh, in touch, um, you, you know, in, teaching English to kids in uh, in Ukraine and stuck there with uh, his girlfriend. And so it's a it's very really kind of touching to have him reach out and let us give us a first hand look of what it's like on the ground there. 
Well, and it's a fascinating, uh, uh, well, check it out yourself, folks. Just It's called Just Ask the Question. Uh, and, and by the way, about 10 seconds into it, you get a read on what's going on there. Because you just mentioned he was living there with his girlfriend. Uh, not right now he's not. As he mentioned uh, in his clarification, the first part of the show, she had to go. I mean, sent her away because of the imminent danger that's going on there. Uh, yep. And, you know, it's it's... A much different perspective, isn't it, Brian? When you can put a face to these stories about refugees going across the border for their safety, and 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 other people staying back to to find out what's going on, to report on that, and some of them to take up arms and fight. Yeah, and it's also was uh, it was kind of um, odd the stories that are told by people who are there on the ground versus the stories that you hear uh, once, you know, once, twice, three, four times removed from the source. So that's why it's valuable to as reporters to try and get people as close to the bone as possible and, you know, even be there if you can and talk to people on the ground. And um, his, you know, the, the encouragement that the Ukrainian people have felt from their president and from the fact that, you know, uh, Russia kind of miscalculated in their uh, invasion has given many people their hope. And it's, of course, rallied the international community to their cause and that in, uh, is not what Putin was expecting. I mean, if you've got Switzerland notoriously neutral coming in on the side against you, you kind of have a problem. Yeah, there's a message there, isn't there? Yes. Anyway, it's 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 a very uh, very uh, not only entertaining but very informative too. Check it out the the latest edition of uh, Just Ask the Question with Brian. All right, let's uh, segue from that right into the speech last night, and it was kind of a tale of two speeches, really, wasn't it, Brian? I mean, the first part of this, the president well focused on. Uh, what was going on in Ukraine, uh, in the international situation and the implications, and of course with Putin, to a, a, a bipartisan supportive crowd. I, mean, I don't remember the last time I've seen a, a president get a standing ovation from both sides of the House, but that happened on more than one occasion, uh, which I guess really kind of underscores the, the, the mood of the country right now and, and the I guess the support uh, that the administration is getting for their, their stand on this so far anyway. Yeah, and I was surprised to read some of the punditry. Of course, that I think it speaks more to the uh, lack of uh, knowledge of those of us in in my business than the speech itself. But you know, some of the criticisms of of the speech, I, I just don't understand because, as you point out, the uh, fact is that <laughs> that was bipartisan support for what he's doing in Ukraine, bipartisan support for what he's doing on immigration and uh, border. Uh, bipartisan support for the stuff he's doing in the economy. So, yeah, by any measure, you would think that it was a well-received speech. At least it was there in Congress, except for the, you know, the two morons, Bobert and uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I, I remember when I was a kid, my we would go to the grocery store and on occasion we'd see some nuns there. And usually you're very deferential to the nuns, but on occasion we would see people that would heckle the nuns, you know, oh, you need to get out of those robes. And, and I remember my dad going, what kind of idiot heckles nuns? And we saw who last night that would be Green and Bobert. They'd be ones heckling nuns, just rednecks of, un, you know, disrepute and disrespectful. But other than those, that was a very well-received speech. And he hit all the salient points. It is a State of the Union speech, so it should be uh, less on details and more on what they've accomplished in a year. But more to the point, he took the first part of that speech to rally the international community against Russia and told us in no uncertain terms exactly what the problems are and what needs to be done. And it was chilling in so much as that, you know, he said, we're not putting troops in now, but anything that goes against NATO, 
we're there with troops. That's frightening. Um, there are those who believe that World War Three has already begun and that we have to be very we, Belarus is now adding troops into the the mix against Ukraine. So uh, I, I think Biden has is well versed and it's well within his wheelhouse to handle international crises. But this is a very serious situation. And I think he approached it uh, seriously and cogently. I was mentioning to this one of our guests earlier in the in the week. Uh, you know, I, I was just a kid when the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening, but I remember it well, and I remember how frightened I was even as a kid. And and I could see the look in my mom and dad's eyes as we watched uh, President Kennedy and and other people that were involved in that uh, with their speeches. You know, and we're almost at that same point now. I mean, we're past we've that had point. we've had conflicts before. You know, in Syria and, and other places where you know the U.S. troops have had to get involved in in various ways and shapes. But I don't know that we ever thought that we were on the precipice of a war, a world war, or a nuclear war, for that matter. Uh, but that's, you know, with a guy like Putin at the other end of the button, you know, right at his fingertip there, and plus the fact that he's threatened to do this, uh, yeah. it's, it is frightening. He's a power-hungry madman, and I, like you, am old enough, and now I'm telling you I'm old, that, that I remember <laughs> the Cuban Missile Crisis. This, it, we have not, look, all the other conflicts that you mentioned, were uh, wars by proxy, right? It was, you know, Syria, and, and we all backed what was going on there. But this is actual invasion by Russia. This is so far the largest troop movement since World War II in Europe. And it's, it, you know, there are parallels to how Hitler began World War II. What Biden said last night is he's, you know, leveraging, they're trying to strangle um, the Russian economy to try and force them to back down. The question is whether or not by strangling their economy, you know, it might another thing that my dad used to say is never corner a, a rat and, a, you know, never corner one because you never know how they're going to strike out. This is a power hungry madman. You don't know if he's going to go gentle in that good night. And you don't know if there will be forces inside Russia that will force him to stand down or if there'll be a regime change in Russia. You're, there's a big gamble. But what else do you do? Do you let him run over the rest of the world or do you stand up to him? And by choosing this ground carefully, uh, Biden is trying to both strangle the Russian economy and convince them to step down and at the same time, hopefully avoid a nuclear conflagration. But there's no guarantees in this because you're dealing with Vladimir Putin, who is a power hungry madman. And it's the most dangerous situation we've been in in my lifetime in this on this planet. And not enough people, it seems to me, understand that yet. The other thing that I wanted to get your read on is, uh, and the president reiterated this last night, you know, we're not going on the ground. There'd be no boots on the ground uh, in right. Ukraine, which is sad because I know that the Ukraine people are looking for some assistance, which is not going to come. Uh, this is kind of, sort of like the Alamo, you know, Sam Houston's not coming. That's, you know, you guys are on your own, sadly. But the troops are there. NATO troops are all over the place there. The Russians, of course, have built up. The Belarusian troops are over there. The concern that, that some of the experts have talked about here, Brian, is what they call an accidental engagement. Exactly. Uh, and, and for people yes. that don't understand that, if you remember the movie Top Gun, uh, but, you know, there was one of those at the end of the movie. You know, after they passed the courses and everything, there was a dogfight uh, you know, uh, between the U.S. forces and the Russians, which probably happens a lot more than we know in certain situations. They just never get reported or chronicled. 
but but the chances of that happening are, are pretty significant, I think, over there right now. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll look at I'll point to another movie, The Hunt for Red October, when the Van yeah. Pelt character sits down and talks to his Russian counterpart and says, look, uh, having your troops and our troops uh, so close together is inherently dangerous. Wars have started because of such things. And that's the truth. You cannot. Wars are volatile. What's a stray missile or a stray bullet uh, uh, going to do if it, you know, what's going to happen if one of those hits a target that's a NATO asset? Do we go to war then? And it's bound to happen. And you, it's called the fog of war for a reason. You don't want to get dragged into that fog. And unfortunately, each day that this goes on and with a widening uh, invasion that Russia has now put on, it's increasingly possible that such a thing would happen and i got news for you the first time someone from russia steps a toe into poland it's over and that's you know it's got to come there there are people today talking about well this could this conflict could go on for 10 or 20 years we should be so lucky i i'm, I'm more concerned about the next six to eight weeks if yeah. the world survives that well because they know for instance uh, you know even though troops are not going to enter into ukraine you know, the NATO forces and the, and the U.S., of course, is right at the front of that line, are sending munitions, lethal weapons over there for the Ukrainians to use. The supply chain goes through Poland, and, and the yeah. Russians know that. And at some point, I mean, it's not gone well for them to begin with, but at some point, they're going to have to do something about that supply chain. Well, God knows what's going to happen, because that's going to be right at the Polish-Ukraine border, and who knows how, how people are going to respond to that. that. And you're exactly right, and that's the point that frightens many of us who are cogent of the facts and it's why this where we sit on a precipice and, and it's why uh biden has taken the stance that he has and you know when you see the entire world i mean even the chinese haven't really you know exactly jumped in to help out putin i mean they've kind of taken it you know yeah we're for you sure we are back, backing away this is not going to go well for russia in in the long run um, Biden has said, give these sanctions a month. It's been a week and uh, and those sanctions that have been imposed have had dramatic effects so far. It's this next month that you worry about and uh, Russia's response, you know, strangled animals fight to the death. And that's what you kind of are worried about with with Putin. And what you hope is that some rich oligarch who has his ear says, look, pal, there's money and power to be made other than, you know, killing everybody. And I ultimately, you don't think the Chinese are going to jump in on it because they've got investments in the United States, Canada and the free world that make them a lot of money. So the idea of staying alive is overwhelmingly stronger than, you know, destroying the world. But when you have one guy with his finger on the trigger that can make it happen, it's a cause for concern for everyone on the planet. One of the things, I think one of the undertones of the messages that last night, especially in the first half of the speech, I, I thought was uh, to remind the American people that, uh, that you know, Putin's the bad guy. Uh, because that's not the message they've been getting for the last four years from the previous president or if they're watching Tucker Carlson or anybody else. I guess Trump's still kind of spouting that stuff off. But it was, yeah. I, I think Biden had to reiterate that, look, at this is an evil man uh, with evil intentions. And, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that that seemed to really resonate with the people that were in the house last night, including Republicans and gave him yeah. a bipartisan standing ovation. There are many people in the Republican party. And finally, some of them are stepping out publicly, but too many of them are still 
private in their condemnation condemnation of of Trump, who called you know Putin savvy and a genius. Only in so much of these conniving, and he's like Hitler. Yeah, that's a sa- savage, savvy genius. But when he's when Biden said, "Look, this was premeditated, and it was unprecedented and unprovoked," and he's talking about Putin making war on the innocent Ukrainian people, and he points to a woman in the audience from Ukraine and says, "The United States is with you. We stand united," and that resonated. And the idea that NATO will stand together—that was the big thing that Trump tried to tear NATO apart. Trump, Trump tried to get rid of NATO. Trump tried to. Uh, also not send arms to Ukraine. He, and now he's claiming that he did all those things and he's holding, you know, he, he was the one who had NATO jump in and pay their fair share. That's all garbage. He was it, him and Putin had conspired to defrock NATO and defang NATO. And what NATO has done is come back now, those 29 nations more powerful than ever. And that's something that that Russia didn't count on. And it's something that Putin has, um, I, I think, misstepped. And but it's it's gotten into a quagmire quickly. And I think that unless um, the rest of the world wakes up a little bit more, this is going to it's not going to go well. Uh, the president's had a rough time of, of late uh, with some of the domestic policies, of course, because he's been, as you said, kicked in the head a few times by uh, by some of the members of the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell was there last night, of course, looking like he just, uh, you know, got a contract to be the poster boy for Pepto-Bismol. But that's just the way Mitch. He always looks that way. And I think. He oh, oh, OK. Did. All right. <laughs> but does this does this help Biden, uh, who had, you know, terrible approval ratings at this stage, but to be strong against Russia like that and, and to speak in the tones that he did last night is. is got to be a positive for him. I don't know if it's going to put him back uh, in a comfortable position, but at least it, I think people are going to have a second look and say, hey, that's the kind of leader we need right now. I think that uh, he did himself a world of good last night by standing strong against Russia. Uh, I think even and, and by the way, Mitch McConnell is one of the that's one of the things he did not like about Trump. Mitch McConnell has been a, a anti-Russian politician since he and that's one thing he's remained true to. He hates Russia. So there you have seen less uh, vitriol coming out of Mitch McConnell towards Biden lately because they agree on this subject and they understand the importance of it. McConnell does understand how uh, vicious and dangerous Russia is. So you got to give them that much. But, you know, there are others who are just morons and they're never going to learn. And hopefully this invasion by Russia may have had unintended consequences for the United States, Russia and the rest of the world. It's showing free people in stark contrast between freedom and authoritarianism and despotism, what this world can be. Those people in Ukraine were peaceful. They had their own country for 30 years. And for no reason at all, Russia invaded under a pretense that Russian speakers in Ukraine were being discriminated against, which is all baloney. So it's, it's shown the world. And by the way, social media has helped to do it. And that's been one of the things I don't think Napoleon definitely couldn't have done it. Hitler probably couldn't have done it. They couldn't have been as successful as being autocrats as they were because the ability to sell propaganda has lessened across the world with the advent of social media and cameras being able to tell everyone in the world and show them in real time what's going on. And I think that was one of the biggest miscalculations that by uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, that Putin has made. Uh, in his invasion. And I think it's going to reap dividends that we don't even understand yet. 
Brian, as always, uh, thanks for this. Great talking with you again. Uh, I'll remind our listeners, go to the podcast, check it out. Uh, when you got what, uh, well, an hour to listen to it, it's incredible. Uh, just ask the question is the podcast. Uh, stay well, my friend. We'll talk again soon, okay? Thank you, man. Take care. I'll put in a quick uh, plug for the book. Free the press. Oh, if you get a yeah. chance, got to buy it. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can get, get, that, get that online, too. It's available at uh, fine bookstores all over the place, or you can get it online uh, at Amazon. Uh, take care, Brian. We'll talk again soon. Brian J. Carroll, political commentator, of course, and author and uh, podcaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.